So hello and welcome to this bonus episode of the Shiny Side Up podcast, hosted by Mick Hazelton and myself, Chris White. This episode was actually recorded some time ago on the 15th of April 2020, but due to personal circumstances, I've only now been able to edit it and upload it for you to listen to. In this episode, Mick and I discuss our own work on our respective race cars during the COVID period and some other related automotive projects we've been working on, ranging from fuel injector testing to fiberglass moulding. Now, much has changed since this episode has been recorded, notably the cancellation of the 2020 Nationals. However, hopefully this doesn't spoil the listening experience too much. Hope you enjoy the show. So hello and welcome to another episode of the Shiny Side Up podcast. I'm Chris White and joining me again, Mick Hazelton. How are you doing, Mick? I'm great. Thank you, Chris. It's good that we're back at it again. Good times, mate. And uh, look, uh, before we get started, once again, just to introduce and thank the improved production sponsors for New South Wales, Yokohama, Aussie Hire, Faber Competition Parts, Midas, DBA, Disc Breaks Australia, Ravenol, Bring It Digital, and V-Sport. Thank you to these sponsors. Thank you for supporting our category and supporting the sport we love. Uh, Mick, mate, what have you been up to? Um, it's obviously challenging times for everybody at the moment. We're stuck at home, most of us, you know, between working from home and video conferencing and uh, I guess for those of us who have office-based jobs or for the others who may still be out there doing essential services. And if you are one of those people, thank you. Mick, Mate, what are you what are you occupying your spare time with, such as it is at the moment? Well, I'm, I'm still working, which is good, and because of my work, I am essential, and I still get to go and work. But because we're not allowed to travel anywhere, kind of, we're all on lockdown. I have been very inspired by our chats over the last podcast, and felt a little bit guilty for not giving the Mazda enough love. So I, I got into it, yeah, I, I got into it. Now, I was, coincidentally, I also had a delivery turn up, which is pretty exciting, which was my fuel injector tester flow ultrasonic cleaner little unit that I got, which is, you know, I made the decision of getting one of those so I could always know what my injectors were like and quality and flow and everything. And... They're around about the same price as another set of four injectors. So I thought, well, let's see what we can do with one of these. And if it fails, then I I guess I could have sold it on to someone else that might have wanted it or kept it at the back of the shed like most of us do with stuff that we buy. So tell me a little bit about this injector cleaner mix. So you've, what is it, an eBay purchase or something like that? Yes, yes. Yeah, so yeah. I've been I've been watching them for a while and did a little bit of research and and I knew I wasn't getting a a shop industrial quality unit. I knew I was getting the home handyman style unit, but it's had all the bits that I wanted to be able to use. So it had, comes in with the inbuilt pump and it comes with pre-programs for different what they call idle, medium, or heavy load. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but you know, basically just gone through some. Um, different millisecond rates on the injector. So mm-hmm. you can watch spray patterns and you can s- measure how much the injector is flowing over a certain amount of time. And it yep. also comes with an ultrasonic bath that you can you know, clean the injectors with. So cool. it's it's been an, an annoying thing for me not knowing when I'm going to have my next injector issue. And 
It shouldn't so can be. I stop? Can I stop you there, Mick? Because yes. I think this is interesting. The background as to why you bought this machine. So maybe you can talk us through some of the issues you've been having with fueling and, in, and injector problems with the Mazda. Because I think some people out there may be able to identify with the issues you've been having. I think a lot of people will. I think it's quite a common thing. So I'm I'm not running E85, which is known to have caused some issues, but I don't know if it's because of fuels changing or whatever it is, but I've had fuel tank foam degrade down. I've had filters fail and not do their job properly. And I've slowly blocked injectors or I've had a chunk of fuel come through and block an injector. And it, it just messes, as you start getting this, you, you'll notice a loss of power, but you'll you'll also hear it. If you know what you listen for, you'll hear something a little bit off. And you could even think it's like a, a coil issue or something. So I've had so many problems with it. And I've, from, I think, poor fuel system design as well. And I've slowly fixed as many things as I can. I've redesigned how I pick up fuel in the fuel tank. And we've changed that. I've put in later model E85 style foam, hoping that it doesn't degrade as much as the older stuff did. And, you know, I've, I've just feel like I'm not chasing my tail, but it seems to be endless, you know, like it seems yeah. to be you get a really good run for a while and then you'll start having a problem. Now, as a little side note here, I've also, which you know, but I've also had an injector go and dud on me for a while. So it was good. Then I'll change its rate of flow, sometimes more, sometimes less, and then mm. back to back to good again. And, I, and that's been a problem that I've had for a while, and that was why I parked the car ultimately last year is because I was just fed up with – I couldn't tune the problem out. So it, it really mm. annoyed me. I'm like, well, if it just did the same thing all the time, I could, you know, balance it and – you know, put an offset in the tune to make it work. Anyway, I got so frustrated. I didn't want to lose another engine because of it or anything because you can, obviously, with a lean-out or something. If yeah, you're yeah. Especially revving hard. And in a rotary, it's worse because the only thing that cools apex seals in a rotary is the fuel and the oil that's in the fuel mm-hmm. because they're on the outside. There's no internal oil doesn't cool them and water doesn't cool pretty much anything mm-hmm. there. So I, I bought the machine with the intent of at least proving what I thought was a problem is actually a problem because I, I had a thought that maybe that I've got a, a loom issue. You know, maybe it's not the injector's fault and because it was so inconsistent. But I proved instantly that I had a massive issue with an injector, one injector right. when I put on this machine, which I kind of... I sort of knew anyway. It already changed to another inject set of injectors, but I wanted to use this machine to put a bit of a check on my sanity, I suppose, of what all my fault finding had actually come to the correct answer. And yes, it did. So those injectors are parked. They're not in the bin, but you know they're a way where they can't be used in the Mazda anyway hmm. at the moment and marked. Cool. Yes. So so. so- uh, I guess talk us through the process of, of, of getting a machine like this uh, and setting it up. I mean, obviously, buy a machine like this and and, and you, you mentioned yourself that you weren't necessarily 100% sure it was going to be entirely accurate. So what process did you go about in terms of 
busting it out um, and testing it. So to start with, I read the instructions, which a lot of people wouldn't do, but I was like, oh, I want to make sure. And I'm pretty sure they weren't even written for the same machine because it was saying this, there's a drain hole on the side of the machine and there was zero drain holes. So I'm like, what the <laughs> hell is going on here? You know? And so I did what I suppose any someone who likes to play and fiddle around and thinks they've got some engineering skills, I just pulled it apart and learnt it. So mm -hmm. I figured out what they were doing, where everything had to go. And it was actually very simple. I don't understand why the instructions were written so terribly. But just to fill the fuel bowl up, it just it said to pour the fuel in through the side. And it, there was nothing through the side. And they gave you a little funnel. And I'm like, well, where does this even, what, what's going on? And then when I worked it out, it makes perfect sense. You fill it up through the actual beakers that you're pouring the fuel into. And then there's a drain switch that you can flick, which is just a seal that just unseals. And then it drains into the bowl. And it was so obvious once I worked out engineering, but they could have explained that in one sentence. <laughs> <laughs> I read three pages and couldn't get to the answer. You know, so that was frustrating. So you know, obviously with all these cheaper, more affordable, lesser industrial quality machines, that you're going to get some sort of issues with it. But it lit it actually it worked fine. It, the the yep. job that it did worked. So. When I figured out all the adapters and how they work with on they screw into the fill rails and which ones I needed, they give you a lot of you know different sizes. So you can turns out so you can back flush them, turn the injector upside down that is and flush mm -hmm. them through, and still get a seal. Or if you got the 14 mil O-ring or 11 mil O-ring style injector, so there's mm -hmm. just combinations of the fittings that you need to fit onto the fuel rail. Are they compatible with? high impedance, low impedance, different connectors, all that sort of thing? So there's no switch for that. So they've just got a range on what the, the millisecond, like what it's firing at. And if you've got high impedance, I'm guessing you're going to get a lesser right. you know, cycle on it. So it's not the kind of thing that you could check if you've actually got 550cc injectors. Right. You know, like you, you couldn't work that out from it unless you have far more knowledge than I do on the situation and how to work it out and measure the impedance exactly when you're running it to then work out what millisecond you're actually running at the injector and not what it's firing at from its, you know, control unit. But it, I think the the point of it is just to go through a different range of millicycle, milliseconds and so it's steady the whole time. Yeah. So... On to actually using the machine and the first thing that I knew I had to do was find my zero point like is what what does anything flow uh, you know are they all going to flow the same do all the connectors work so I just went through testing and cycling through and and pretty much I don't know I must have done 50 tests I reckon to start mm -hmm. with of just constantly well learning the machine as well but also you know trying to find my zero this would have been so much easier if I had a known set of injectors that were even. But because mm -hmm. not one injector I owned, <laughs> I knew was the same as another one, I mean, I had to do A, then B, then C, then flip onto, you know, I was, because mine's a four injector and a four, four beaker machine, if you want to call that. Mm -hmm. So you can put plugs in and run it as one, two, three, or four injectors. 
And then I was, I was, you know, are the beakers all measured the same? Does every plug that plugs in the injector cycle the same? Is they all the same? So I went through, got my zero point, and I figured out that running all four injectors actually was too inconsistent. And that's because the inbuilt pump in the fuel bowl can't supply enough pressure to flow a reason right. 550s. I feel that if you're in them, using motorcycle injectors, you know, something in the hundreds, yeah. they'll probably yeah. be okay, you know, maybe 200 even. But in a race injector, you know, we're flown to make the horsepower we need to in mm-hmm. improved production, you need to have a much higher flow injector, of course. And I, but what I did find was it was consistently inconsistent, if that makes sense. So... It would do the same errors all the time, meaning mm-hmm. that I you could use it to get a good enough base reading. So, for instance, if I had my set of four injectors and they were all even, whichever injector I put in slot one would flow, say, 104 mils for its preset time, where in mm-hmm. slot two would do 98 slot three would do 98 and slot four would do 94 you know so there was there was obviously a fuel delivery issue through the rail maybe flow size i don't know what was causing it and to be honest i didn't feel the need to investigate further because it was consistently wrong but the same Mm -hmm. wrong all the time so if you had now i've got my set of numbers i could theoretically put them across and put injector one in slot one, so to speak, and then write down what they are. Now I know they're all even, which I'll get to Mm -hmm. in a minute. And then I could just use that as a quick test. And as long as they all flowed across like that, then I could say, right, they're still flowing what they should do, even though the numbers would all read differently. It would be Mm. what I know is the same. But I just didn't trust that method either. I didn't, because the fuel pump can't keep up, if you have an injector that is a little bit blocked and doesn't flow as well, all the others flow more. Yeah. So, so the more even your injectors were, the, the better the results I was getting. But when yeah. I put in one that was, you know, I knew was bad because I had one that I knew was bad, it would just mess up all my readings straight away. Right, right. So I actually ended up just doing one at a time. And then... Yeah going through I actually picked chamber two just because that was the one I picked and I did all my testing on it and then I would go through test 12 injectors because I had 12 I only need four in the Mazda but I was I had 12 secondhand series four turbo injectors that I was cleaning and matching and trying to find good sets in and I just one after the other then back to the original one to make sure the machine was still flowing the same and I just had a3 sheets of paper everywhere <laughs> in the yeah. garage with injectors and numbers written on it and trying to keep track of where I was up to and keep my data. And then, yeah, I've, ultimately, I got consistent results no matter how many times I tested it. I kept getting the same number over and over and over again. I'd swap to another injector and get the same number. I'd swap to another one, get the same number, leave the machine yeah. for a while, then bleed it from air, try it again, and I'd get the same number. So, so happy man. I was happy. I was confident that I got a couple of sets out of the twelve. I've got um, 
four in the car now and a fifth one that's can be replaced with either of those that flows the same and another four that are good enough to put in as another set of four that flow a tiny little bit more but evenly above yeah, those. Yeah. So if I ever wanted to change sets, I could, but I won't. Cool. Yes, so that was that was really good. And because we had four days, well, I had four days of pretty much garage time over the Easter weekend, I actually got to start it. Great. I, yeah, I I put them in the car and I, I was confident enough and everything else was right. And so I plugged the, the PC in and basically started playing around with what it needed just to get it to run and work with building a pretty much a brand new fuel map. I kept my old ignition map because there's no need to change that. That's perfect. Mm-hmm. And basically found some what the injectors needed for different load rates just as a quick garage run. I need dyno time, of course, but mm-hmm. just to get a quick base map in. And she braps and screams and sounded like a brand new engine again. So I was... Easter Sunday for me was a great day. Happy days. <laughs> the garage still smells like like <laughs> a big rev and rotor. So it good was, stuff. Yeah, um, it put me in a fantastic mood ever since. Very good. That's yeah. good, Mick. And, and and look, I think that a lot of people out there could take a leaf out of your book or a page out of your book, I should say, in terms of you know just taking this time to attack those projects that you've been putting off for whatever reason, either you've just been demotivated by some bad results or some, you know, some, some bad luck at the track in the past and, you know, taking this opportunity is to, to reset and just get back into the car. So good on you. That's good. I'm very happy to hear that. Um, It's, uh, it's, it's, um, it'll be good to see that car back on track when we get back into racing and, yeah, very good. So, plans from here, mate. Any any other things you're gonna you're gonna be looking at getting into on the RX7 over the next weeks, months, as we uh, you know, however long we're yes. we're off for. Yes. So, because I was so keen and I didn't want to stop playing when I was on such a good high from from hearing the the brappy brappies going on and getting me up. I'm on I'm on a win here. So I've been discussing with with Dad. The, the knowledge center on because he's as confused as I am like why are right handers causing issues with this car and what we've done with this car and it uh, never the happened. oil search yeah oil search right so no matter what we've had I've had two so the car came with a very good Moroso sump in it that hung down 60 mils below the front subframe and meant the car had to run 150 to 160 mils right. ride height just to make it legal and you know it still scraped a ripple strip every now and then you know with my adventurous driving style that i have so <laughs> it's um you know that wasn't good news and i, I really what did want to get the front of the car much lower so dad and i had some ideas we built a lower sump dropped the car down and you know the work the car was much better i felt it was much better it suited how i drove the car putting down decent performances in the car it was going all right but i kept losing engines <laughs> so, yeah you know and it was the same thing all control rings every single time pretty much except for one time where i stuffed up and put the wrong spark plugs in just to do a cold start one winter and nipped all the apex seals with the electrode so that was my stupidity and i don't mind admitting these things because it's a good lesson <laughs> good lesson learned 
have to have to rebuild a whole engine just mm. because. Well, not a whole engine, but you know, still out of the car and stripped down. Anyway, so back to oil surge. You some, oil you some, surge. you're having issues with with oil control rings. Yes. Uh, we 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 did discuss in an earlier episode the fact that you had come up with some fairly creative ways to potentially overcome this problem. So it might be worthwhile running back over recap that it, yep. again. Yeah. Yep. So we so just 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 before that, we did make another very good wet sump, and it it worked extremely well until the five apex right hander at the bend, the very fast right hander around the that you just kept turning right, right, right and third gear high up in the RPM range. And I'd started getting surge on Friday at the Nationals in twenty eighteen. And that made me go, right, I I need to fix this problem because I don't want that killing another engine. And then we went to a hybrid setup where we used the Mazda factory pump for pressure that goes through the engine that has fed from a dry sump tank full of oil that a dry sump pump scavenges out of the sump and then fills that tank. So it's a semi-wet, dry system, I suppose you could call it. With the oil gravity feeding to the factory pump from that tank? Well, it is gravity to, for its startup head pressure, but yep. once the once the motor's turning, she's sucking pretty suck, hard. Suck, suction, yeah. 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 But I was getting cavitation and still getting oil issues. Now, they were happening on right-handers again, and I was, I don't know if anyone had seen my footage from the rear of the car from the Sydney Motorsport Park round when we had 50 cars in the grid at the start of the year last year. But a lot of people asked why was it stopping on right-handers cutting out and that was because the ECU was looking after the engine and when it would fall in oil pressure massively, it was cutting the engine. So I was basically babying it on right-handers as much as I could because if I didn't turn the car as hard and and ask as much of the engine it didn't happen so that's how i was keeping it running and it's it's bugged me ever since because i didn't make sense so how i'm scavenging out of a in out of a, a sump into a tank and then the tank's filling it how am i running out of oil well mm. after much discussion of ideas and theories and everything i'd I have a spare engine there and then I was having a look and the spark plug side which is where the oil goes up to on a rotary on right handers has much more area for oil to slosh up the side of the the outside of the engine so to speak mm -hmm. that it does on the port side which is obvious because there's inlet ports there there's exhaust ports so there's, yep. there can't be you know anywhere for the oil to go so because we're running the hybrid setup and it's a single stage scavenge pump that we're just trying to suck out of a little single bowl out of the bottom of the sump. Because of the G-forces and the car's hardly standing still, it meant that it wasn't filling the bowl efficient enough with the gravity through the engine, the drain. It wasn't catching the oil well enough. How's that? Mm -hmm. And it was letting it slosh around. So pretty much the same problems you'd you get with a wet sump you know like yep. that's that's the problems you have that runs dry so then my scavenge pump couldn't pull up the oil to fill the 
the dry sump tank, the, the oil tank, to, to get the Mazda pump the head of pressure, like the head of oil it needed to be able to generate pressure and go back through the engine. So I was running a complex hybrid system that was still having wet sump issues. Yeah, yeah. And once we studied where the oil can go in the engine and how we were scavenging it and like it will, how we were letting it drain to the bowl, it was only ever going to work dead straight down the straight and sitting still. They're the only times the oil could have collected into my bowl. Mm. So I feel theoretically that we have solved the problem. Obviously, testing will you know, show. But when I was running the engine, I was seeing how much it picked up, scavenged, actually had the sump. Uh, so I had it, the scavenge off the bottom of the sump, off. So then it was just gravity bleeding to a pickup under the sump. So almost running the engine dry on purpose, if you mm -hmm. know what I mean. So just, yep. just make sure the systems are all working and and did lots of, did two jobs at once because I have to be efficient. So I was refining my cranking and cold <laughs> tune that mm -hmm. while I was doing this because you only want it running for a second or two to while it's kicking oil out on purpose. And then, yeah, I, f I feel that every system is working properly. It was just unable to drain the oil to the spot where we're collecting it for the scavenge pump to be able to be efficient and work. And that's, right. my, that's my issue. So, so you've, you've discovered the source of the problem. Yep. Have you have you got an idea on how to fix it? I mean, I'm I'm trying to get my head around what you're saying. You you know why it's happening. Yep. How are you going to stop it happening? How are you going to keep that oil where it needs to be for the scavenge pump to suck it out? So I'm making a new bowl in the the dry sump. So the dry sump's pretty much a flat plate with holes in it to come down to the bowl. Mm -hmm. So the maths of it is that one g of cornering gravity is exactly the same as the pulling down of natural gravity that we have. Mm -hmm. So if you're cornering at a G, the oil will try and slosh at 45 degree at a 45 mm -hmm. degree angle up the side of the engine. Yep. Because around left-handers, it doesn't have anywhere to go up. It means it fills through the natural holes that we had in that area. Mm -hmm. But around the right-handers, the oil can go up the side of the engine, and it's not even really touching the sump plate where it's trying to drain to. Right. So we're gonna I'm gonna make a, a catch bowl with a deeper section on the left hand side of the motor from the driver's seat. So we mm -hmm. say left and right hand side obviously. So that forty five degrees of one G if we ever get there on cornering means that it'll be lower. It won't be able to climb up the side. Right through the baffle holes like it can now. Right. Okay. Because I didn't have that before. I just had it central and it dead in the middle. So it would basically go up and out of the bowl and then start filling above the baffle plate. Yeah, that makes sense. And, and, and out into that void that you were saying. Out into the void. Yeah, and yeah. It, and then even if it's only just picking up air, you know, it wasn't going to zero oil pressure. It was just losing oil pressure, which mm. means... And when it instantly regains when you corner less hard, in my view, the maths and the physics is saying that it's pulling air. Yeah, so yeah. It's the only way it can be doing that. So, yep. So if I don't let it pull air, then I shouldn't have this problem. Cool. I'm, 
I'm also going to do better baffling as well. The baffling wasn't you know designed well, I don't think. So I'm going to do good wet sump practices and do some better baffling on my micro wet sump, I suppose you would call it, because it's mm-hmm. much smaller. It's not, it's only meant to carry you know two or three hundred mils of oil in there, not much. And I think my nozzle, I suppose the best way to call it, design rather than a big round hole, I'll have it squished down, so to speak. So to speak, so it's low and flat and picking up in a yeah, lower yeah, amount of yeah. mils of oil yeah. in the bowl, if that makes sense. Yeah, so that and that's more of the dry sump, you know, scavenge practice of yes. of making sure you're not sucking um, air yeah. and oil. Uh, you need yeah. to you need to have suction. You know, it's like you, know, you pull your straw halfway out of your drink. You're not going to get any drink, no. <laughs> even if no. it's halfway in. And you so, annoy yeah. everyone with that horrible noise. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> well, at least you're not killing an engine in the process, but there you yes. go. Well, good. All right. Well, that's that's also encouraging. So potential solution to a problem, uh, solution to another problem, both issues that have kept that car off track for a while. So very good. Very exciting. I've got to say it's, um, it's not like a weight lifted, but it feels when, when you get beaten down so often in yeah. – you know, it didn't actually harm me you know, or anything. It's just it was demotivating. Isn't demotivating it? is the best yeah. word for it, exactly. Mm. So, and it was confusing. It just didn't make sense. And and Dad and I, in many discussions, we we both accepted we're missing something extremely obvious here for this not mm-hmm. to work because the engineering was sound in the fact that it could work, but we weren't applying that to all conditions that the car and engine were facing on the track. That's the easiest right. way to explain where the f- engineering failure went. And I suppose that's part of most R&D, which you should find out a lot about yeah. when you're going through, you know, stuff like this on hopefully not as serious as oil pickup, but still little things you'll find out on your car. Yeah, yeah. And and, and I think also our listeners. I mean, I think, you know, when, you, when you're building or, and racing a car, you are going to find limits. You're going to find issues. And, you know, in your case, you've engineered a new oil system to lower the car, and that has that is engineered some issues into the car, which you've then had to solve in order to keep your car low. And Correct. there are reasons you've done that for performance and, and drivability. And anyone out there with a car that they're trying to improve or a car that they've built that they haven't fully troubleshooted yet, and, and yeah, you're right. I mean, I'm going to have those issues. I've already had... Some of those problems, um, cooling issues, water pump issues, uh, issues with my diff that I've identified, and there'll be more, you know, uh, brakes, you know, all of these things um, that I've had to, um, you know, even the first two short track excursions we've had with the 323, yeah, similar similar, similar issues. And I think when, once we get it on track and, you know, in a crowd and trying to race it and trying to, you know, get some idea of how quick it actually is or isn't, then... Um, yeah, I mean, those issues will continue, I think. It's part of racing, isn't it? Well, any development, so to speak, even if it's not for performance, but it's some sort of reliability development even, you could introduce more issues. Exactly as you said, you engineer them into the car, so to speak. Yep. And I've got to give props up to a couple of people, like Mick Poser and other people. When I was talking to them about I wanted to change the sump, they just looked at me and went, why? It works. You're just going to create problems. <laughs> <laughs> and you know old hats you know they probably have been through these sort of things before and yeah but you know, 
they didn't know me and there's no way I could stand the car up in the air like it was when I knew I could get a roll center where I wanted the roll center where I wanted it more and also the center of gravity where I wanted it more and I don't mind playing with these things and I'm willing to accept failures so yeah but there was still very good advice they had that you don't have a problem why are you going to introduce another one <laughs> a possible <laughs> another one yeah, and again, as part of racing, I mean, and, and a lot of people out there could relate to that, even if it wasn't a performance-related change. I mean, sometimes, you know, you want to try something new and all of a sudden that, that introduces issues into the equation. And yeah, I mean, it, again, it's it's part of racing, isn't it? So, well, but I'm glad for you. I'm, I'm happy that, uh, that the RX-7 has made some progress and hopefully will continue to and, and maybe, again, some motivation uh, reintroduced into getting that car on track uh, hopefully this year. Um, well, definitely. Uh, if, we're, if we're allowed to test and get on to some practice in the coming months, which we're all, fingers crossed, are hoping that you know, racetracks become live again soon, and especially you with your yeah. new car. Yeah, and so I'm, I'm, I'm full steam. I'm making sure I get it all ready, and I want to start testing. I want to get this... I want to get this resolved and start having good times in a car that I love again rather than looking at it like it just bit me on the leg, you know. <laughs> yeah, for sure. And and again, listeners out there, get on the spanners, fix those issues, uh, get the cars ready because, you know, again, this is this is the story. Many of us are, are in the same sort of situation where you know, we have an opportunity now to, 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 to fix these things and have cars that are, that are ready for the track. So, yeah, get onto it. So I think, yeah, so, so, yeah, mate, look, um, so, okay, what have I done? A fair bit. Look, I'm, I've changed the diff in it. I mentioned, I think on the last podcast that I'd had some issues, uh, because I chucked an S2000 Torsen in it. Now, long story short, the car is mm-hmm. a restricted turbo car. And obviously as a result, we'd always expected it to make some torque and that can kill diffs. But we also wanted to keep the weight down. So there's a lot of people saying just chuck a Hilux diff in it and it'll work. You know, it'll never break. And there's lots of ratios and center options. Yes, that is true. Uh, but they are heavy. And so there were equally as many people out there suggesting, look, Mazda diffs are strong enough. And if you build them right, they will hold together. I accepted the latter train of thought, and so I got a 12A RX4 casing as recommended by, I think it was Scott Fleming, who recommended I use that. We installed our race products cambered floater kit in that and got our watts link and everything installed and all those brackets you have to weld to make that fit into my vehicle, which was a task, but we got it done. And then the, the decision in terms of how to make it as strong as possible in the centre revolved firstly around yeah, axles. And so you have early Mazda 7-inch diffs run a 24 spline, not really up to the task. Um, uh, some people have gotten away with it, but they are known most, to... Most are on the 26 spline Series 3. That's right. And, and there's a lot of centre options for 26 spline Series 3. But I then discovered that the S2000 Honda, which uses exactly the same crown wheel and pinion arrangement, has a 28-spline centre and obviously a lot of different options in terms of uh, centres as well for the S2000, quite a popular car. So I decided if I'm going to have custom axles made, I may as well go with 28-spline axles, which I did. The issue there was that there are not 
routinely a bunch of open centers for S2000s. S2000s mm. only came out with a Torsen diff from the factory. And then, so if you don't run a Torsen, um, you have to run a, a, an expensive aftermarket center because you know people tend not to buy S2000s and then put cheap aftermarket diffs in them. So it's a Kaz or it's a Gaiken or it's a Cusco or something like that. Lots of options, but expensive. Uh, and I wanted to get the car on track. And was under no illusions that you know it was going to be very quick to begin with. So I found some guy with an S2000 diff who had put a Cusco or a Gaiken something in it, and he had a stock Torsen center. So I bought that for uh, fifty bucks. It wasn't expensive. Thinking, well, Chuck, yeah, it was. It was. It was really cheap. Well, nobody wants to buy them. Who's going to buy a secondhand? S2000 Torsen center when the only thing you can put it in is another S2000, yeah. you know, unless they break centers, which they don't, they do break uh, other parts of the diff from time to time, but centers tend to hold together. They're just not very good. Uh, I chucked it in and I didn't ever think it was going to be quick, but I chucked it in to get the car on track. And of course, you know, the first time I get an opportunity to really give it a little <laughs> bit, I discover very quickly that it's poop. Like it's crap to drive. And so, you know, I have to change that. So uh, I started looking at um, options. As it was, I'd actually managed to find an OS Gaiken Center, which I paid significantly less than retail for, which was brand new. Uh, and I'd had that sitting on the shelf in a 3.6 pumpkin. But I also discovered in my testing the 3.9 will be probably fine for Eastern Creek with the gearbox that I have in the car right now. And so I pulled the Gaiken out of the 3.6 centre that I had and took it to Adam at Hornsby Diffs, who shimmed it up and did his magic with it and set preloads and ramps, angles and everything else, and chucked it in with my 3.9 crown wheel and pinion. And I've bolted that back in the car, so it's ready to go now. I'm excited to to test that when the time comes. I have also started looking at, I guess, what is has always been a bit of a bugbear for early model races, and that is front and rear bumpers, which, thanks to recent rule changes, have opened up to composite replacements. There are no, this probably won't surprise anyone, there's no one out there making off-the-shelf fiberglass or carbon fibre Bumpers for a 1979 Mazda 323. What? Yeah, you, you would, you would, you, you would never think that, they're would you? So popular car, though. They are. They're everywhere. Um, well, the Puerto Rico, they're popular. There is a short. guy in Puerto Rico looks, who makes though. them. Uh, well, yeah. Well, you know, it's it's not everyone's cup of tea. I, I grant you that, but um, you know, it's uh, one of those things. And it, so there's a guy in Puerto Rico, uh, some guy who drag races these things. But uh, of course, the shipping from Puerto Rico not really uh, conducive to, to shipping parts of that size. So I have looked into local options. There are plenty of guys out there who, well, not plenty, but there are a handful of people out there who will custom mould fibreglass parts for you. I have one reasonable rear bumper for the 323, even though I've had several wrecks and, and they seem to all be bent or rusty. And uh, I have one, one, and that's it. And I've got three or four front bumpers, some of which are all right. One of those I've used with a sort of an aftermarket front plastic skirt to sort of put something on the car, which is on there now. And with the steel bumper and the plastic skirt and a plywood under tray, it weighs a lot. It's heavy. So there's huge savings there in weight. 
in any event, I'm not happy with the design and it's very heavy. So I have the option to, um, I guess with a bit of time on my hands, uh, have a crack at molding something out of fiberglass, which I freely admit I have never done before. I have had a lot of people tell me it's not hard and I should try it. And so I'm going to. And again, I, I think, you know, these are the sorts of things, I think, when we've got a little bit of time to do things that don't involve leaving our house. <laughs> mm. but, uh, and I've got, you know, a bit of space in my shed, thankfully, um, and access to some materials with a sort of fiberglass molding sort of stuff. My dad's got some boat stuff um, that left over from making molds and that sort of thing. So I've got some, I've got some resin, I've got some, some, um, some gel coat and some, some mat got, and all got, that stuff. Got, yeah. The thing that you don't have is weather on your side. So speaking from experience, because I know where you live, the damp, cold nights really don't let the reaction of fiberglassing set well. And it doesn't right. matter, and you and you can't just put more hardener in it, thinking that's going to help, because then it just doesn't go off properly. It needs to mm-hmm. be the same ratio. So you're going to spend if you if you're going to start trying now, you're going to spend a lot of nights with halogen lights and heater blowers and heat guns all over your molds and everything, trying to get them to go off for hours. Right. Right. So just from experience, if you can wait till the tapering off of winter for you to start experimenting so then by spring and you know because it's still it's still cold in spring where you are and where i am pretty much we're not that far apart we've got very similar weather and yeah it's you need your hot dry conditions for the fiberglass to how really long set well how long does it take for something like this to cure if i was gonna if i was gonna do it right because i mean so again, the larger the item obviously yeah it, it takes longer to cure and then the other thing is the thickness. So with your mould, you want your moulds very, very stiff and thick. Mm, yeah. So so then they stay true for as long as possible. But with your actual, you know, your actual end product, that can be that can go off pretty easily because yeah. it's quite thin all of the yeah, time. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And you're using uh, more of a matted woven sheet and the high quality two part epoxy resin rather than whatever junk you've got. <laughs> Anything yeah, will right. do for a mould, pretty much. Yeah, yeah. The 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 benefit of your moulds in your design and your strength, and how you can, you know, bolt it and unbolt it together to be able to get your actual product out is where the smarts in the mould is. But yeah. in the end product, the obviously the skill as well. But the products you use really make a difference to the strength, where the strength is, depending on what kind of woven sheet you use a fine weave or a multi-directional weave or whatever mm-hmm. anyway it sounds like something we can talk about a lot more another time yeah you know. i think so and and i think also again there'll be some you know ip drivers out there in particular early model races not but not just early model races who might get some benefit out of fiberglass molding techniques uh and i know that we have some listeners who are actually really good at this um not just in 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 fiberglass but in carbon and in vacuum forming and that sort of thing maybe we can get a special guest on to tell us how they do it yeah someone wants to contact us especially you via the facebook page with any sort of ideas or or knowledge that they're very good at. I think vacuum bagging carbon's a bit beyond what you want to do, right? Because you need to bake them as well. It's it's a lot beyond what I want to do. 
Yeah, you don't have to bake them. There are there are products that you can vacuum bag that don't require heat, as I understand it. The pre-res ones or whatever. Yeah. Yeah, um, and, and and where you inject the hardener with the with the um, the vacuum processes. I've seen I've, these are YouTube things, so I'm no expert in this, and I might be speaking out my backside. But I mean, in any event, you're right. I don't think your average IP competitors going to gain a huge amount out of vacuum bagging. We're not sports sedans, um, although the quality of some of the cars in IP is, you know, definitely at that level. Did, but did, yeah, you just can't do much. But rewing, front, yeah, rewing, door cards, yeah, bit, bits, bits and pieces here and there. You know, some people do nice, you know, sexy intake boxes and, you know. Uh, these sorts of things. Uh, so, you know, I guess some people out there again are operating at that level. Um, but for this for this situation, I mean, f uh, my car's never going to win best presented at a national. So, you know, if my front bumper mould is not perfect, uh, as long as it is whatever the rules says in terms of um, you know similar appearance to the original or or mechanically identical or whatever, you know, and it will be, it's going to be moulded off a Mazda bumper, but it might not, you know, might have a few bumps and ripples in it and a few yeah. imperfections, but, you know, I'm not going to, I'm not going to be sweating that, you know, once you put a couple of stickers on it and, and, and a lick of paint, you know, it'll from, be fine. yeah, it'll be fine for the racetrack. And, and, and again, it's about, um, I, I also want to redesign, like I said, the, the front end amp. So it's not just the making of the mould, I need to make the plug. And so um, that's sort of, my project for the next um I don't know, week or so i know but the plug is not i'm talking about the front air dam which is this plastic horrible thing from you know i don't like the shape yeah but you um, you make your plug off modifying what you've got yeah i know and that's yeah, exactly okay. what i'm talking about i'm going to i'm going to start with what i have and get it right so you know there'll be there obviously there's various ways i can i can do that i can use um non-shrinking modeling clay and filleting wax and and uh maybe some bog and other things and then you know give it um again you know from the research i've done and this is sort of the process i'm going to follow i'll then seal the plug once i've got it to a i guess a standard that i'm happy with and a shape that i'm happy with and then yeah start start um preparing the mold so that's the plan yeah yeah, the mold the mold's tricky because of your where you pull it apart so you can get the actual end product out. Mm, mm. When you've got a curved compound curved surface like like a front air dam, that's where they get really tricky, and you got to get you might yeah. have a few wins and losses with that. Yeah, I've I've had um, I've had a good look at sort of well, a good look at I've, I've I've given what I have right now. Um, the biggest problem would be the end caps for the bumpers wrapping around on themselves. I think, though, that if I didn't mould the end caps onto the bumpers or if I moulded them separately, the rest of it is all capable of being done in a single mould. Should I do that? Maybe not, because getting the part out of the mould then will be a challenge, as you've said, I guess. You know, yeah. that these are problems, um, especially if, if there are, you know, and again, this is where when I'm thinking about sort of making a plug that will have nice you know, smoother curved edges on it than what I currently have, and and um, uh, yeah, they they stick better though. <laughs> yeah, nice long, smooth. Yeah, short, sharp bends break out of the mold easier. Anyway, okay, because they're stronger. So right. long, flatter surf surfaces are hard. The next time you're down around my way, maybe when you when I'm celebrating that the Mazda's working again one day, <laughs> <laughs> you 
You well, can, I've play. got a few molds. Yeah, well, I've got a few molds around from the sports sedan, and I've also oh, it's at Dad's place, but my front air dam. Because um, we should, when I lowered the car, we had to take nearly fifty mils out of the air dam. Mm-hmm. That's how much lower we made the front of the car. <laughs> so well, that's an, that's another issue I have. I, I wouldn't mind lowering the ride height and having the freedom within the air dam to to bring it up a bit because right now how i've made it i could potentially raise it a bit but you know there's some buggerizing around that i'd have to sort of engage in to do that uh, and making a design that potentially has the freedom to 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 uh, raise and lower the height a little bit and that might mean that a two-piece design will be will be better as well so yeah i'm sure you'll figure it out over time with some development working out what's good and bad what you want and what you don't want. <laughs> yeah, and and yeah. and you know that's I guess that's where we're at right now. And uh, as you know, also I'm I'm playing with gearboxes because I've been complaining so much about my short but very <laughs> bad experience with the GetTrack 260. To anyone out there who is considering a GetTrack 260 in a race car, and if you have any option not to use this gearbox, don't use it. That's <laughs> terrible. <laughs> But anyways, I'm yeah, I'm looking at options. Um, I've had some some long conversations with various people, and hopefully a motorsport gearbox is in my future. So we're working through that process right now. Uh, you know, cost is is not great, especially for imported options at the moment. And Hollinger is always expensive, but they make a great box. So yeah, just working through that, and hopefully uh, pretty soon. Yeah, we'll have some. We'll settle on some ratios, and I'll have a bell housing, and and we'll have figured out how to squeeze something into the tunnel. So all this stuff is is a work in progress. But you know, while we've got the time, and uh, we talked about it in our last episode, these these development pathways that you know potentially, if you've got the opportunity and the time to um to 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 be exploring those things now. So yep, all, all really good things we, happening. Really, then when we're allowed to go racing again, we should have full grids around the country of freshly prepared developed ready to go race cars <laughs> yeah that's what again, i want to see <laughs> and it wouldn't it would be great and i think you know again this is what this is what i i really genuinely hope that people are able to you know i know not everyone can but but for those who who do have the opportunity to to take advantage of this time to get out and and uh, and do some work on the car and uh, and look um, I, I mean I'll probably be chasing updates from people uh, out there putting photos on Facebook show us what you're doing because again all of this stuff helps motivate us and everybody who listens to uh, get out and be doing the same sorts of things because this is not you know the end of the world um this is a, a an opportunity and if you, if you can see it that way to to get out and maybe um you know get your car ready so that um when yeah when racing does begin we're going to have big grids big you know and, and and exciting race meetings and and um you know i i'm still excited about the possibility of a of a, of a nationals in october in in queensland i'm, I'm excited about the possibility of going to phillip island for the first time with my car in uh, for island magic if i get an opportunity none of this may be possible but but you know i'm i'm I'm, i guess i'm trying to be optimistic and and that's uh making it easier for me me to get out and and, and play with the car so i hope others out there are having the same sort of experience i'm even hoping for the next test day like yeah like just just to have that goal point where you're just really looking for i miss looking forward to going to the racetrack yeah you know and this 
and because of the inspiration that even in effect I've given myself by doing the podcast, it's really got me off my butt and into the shed and and gets me keen to go racing again and and you know it's just puts you in a really good mood I feel to in the right headspace to want to do good work on your car and to figure these things out and we do have the time now and I feel like oh, I've got that bug again where I'm just hanging to get to the racetrack again yeah that's, that's a that can only be a good thing yeah for sure sure and 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 you know mate, I'm so much the same obviously I probably I don't know if it was easier to motivate um you know or, or whether you know my situation is perhaps a little more conducive to easy motivation i've got a brand new car i want to get it on track but we all want to race right we all want to have an opportunity to get you know our cars out there and and and, and circulating around a track and yeah look i'm i'm with you it's it's great even sitting down and editing the podcast and and seeing the comments as they come in from from listeners out there and we thank you all for your support it's um yeah mick and i are not professional broadcasters we're just racers like you um who like to talk smack about racing and we just record it and, and, and put it out there for people to listen to and and for us this is something fun to do to talk about racing keep our mind uh, on subjects that we enjoy and anything we can find you know whatever works for you out there to to help motivate you to get on and work on your car you know talking to friends uh, um you know, listening to this podcast checking out youtube for for, for footage and looking at what's going on or what has happened in the past. Uh, you know, there are certain YouTube videos that I tend to go back to time after time, great races, um, footage that always makes me smile of, of usually in-car stuff. You know, there's, but I want, there's a few I videos. I want new stuff. I want new stuff. Where is all the new stuff? Come on, peeps out there. I thought with all this time at least, people would be, you know, putting some effort in to get their videos up on YouTube for us to all watch. <laughs> <laughs> I want new content. I've been, I know that's pretty selfish of me, but I, you know, you can only look at, I do enjoy going back. Like you, you have said, I do enjoy looking at a lot of stuff, but I feel that we get a lot of content late during race season because people are concentrating on the next race and not really, it's already happened. What's the point? But you know, right now it'd be good for everyone to keep the inspiration going. If, if anyone's got any footies lying around, and they just haven't been bothered. Just let it start uploading. Doesn't have to edit it much. We can. We don't want to have to skip forward. We don't care if it's not edited. Just <laughs> get it up there and and keep keep everyone keen. And if we want to see what happens. And and you know what? I even enjoy sometimes. I even look for races that I was in. Yes, some to look at how my car looks on the track every now and then. I'm not going to lie and say that i don't do that i think everyone likes everyone to see what does looks that like because everyone you don't <laughs> because you don't know what it's like on the inside you want to see what it looks mm. like from the outside mm -hmm. but i also will remember like a moment or a pass or or like seeing what happens on the other end of the the grid or something that happened you know laps that i didn't finish because i had to pull yeah. in or something yeah. whatever you know whatever it was it's I, I really enjoy seeing everyone's footage. I don't care if it's the front of the field, the back of the field, the middle of the field, people getting past, people passing. I don't care what it is. I enjoy – it reminds me of the feeling that I had at the track and mm. that good feeling of being around good people and racing lots of cars. And we all miss it at the moment. So I, th I would really like to see people putting a lot more effort in throwing up some YouTube footage. 
if it's not YouTube, whatever media form they wish to use. But I think a lot of our listeners would have to say, I mean, who does not want more IP footage on YouTube? And and, and I think, uh, I guess that's a challenge to listeners. Um, if you have got footage, you've got footage that you haven't put up on YouTube before, put it up. If you are one of these people who has trouble with these sorts of things, I offer my services, such as they are, to help yep. you get them up. So you send me an email, message me through Facebook, give me a call if you have my number. Uh, if you don't, I'm not going to offer it here on this podcast, but what I will do is say, look, anyone who's interested uh, and has some footage, you can email me and uh, and I will definitely be putting that up. Um, if you're listening to this on your podcast app, my email address will be in the description. So go and look at the podcast description and you, if you are interested and you've got some footage that you are unable to put up on YouTube, then uh, then send me an email and I will help you do that or I'll do it for you. Um, another uh, thing, you can put well, my you can put my email in there too if you want, just in case someone wants to blow me up about something. <laughs> there you go. So my my, yeah. my email and Mick's email will be in the in the description of this podcast. So yeah, jump jump on and, and send us an email if you uh, if you have any uh, any inquiries or, or or if you're keen to put some footage up. Another thing too, we all know people out there who who race and who don't put footage up, and there's footage that we would love to see. Uh, and Mick, I know you and I have spoken a little bit about Paul Vuleman, who is a past ep- uh, guest on, on yes. our show, yes. uh, who we guest. would desperately love to see some footage of him sliding around in the rain at Phillip Island. He teased uh, finishing he says he's got it. Second or third. Yeah, I've got to, I'm, I'll follow you up, Paul. Paul, if you're listening, I'm, I'm, I'm going to give you a call and chase that footage up because we want to see that. Other footage that I'm keen to see. Is, is footage from 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 maybe times gone by, and I know that the footage might not be necessarily of great quality because GoPros you know, haven't been around for that long. But people like Mark Ruder and um, these sorts of guys who were you know legends of the category who may not be racing anymore or you know are on hiatus or whatever, I know you guys have got footage. Uh, and um, Mark you know, Mark's probably not a listener. If, but I know that there are people who listen to this podcast who know Mark and, and, are, and are probably on pretty close terms with him. Challenge your ex-IP racing friends um, to get their footage up too. Uh, and if they can't do it, but they have the footage, again, please put them in touch with me. Or if you can get their footage, send it through to me. I will get it up because you know this is all stuff that, again, can help motivate us uh, as an IP community by reminding us of just how good the racing is in this category and has been for, for, for a long time, how cool the cars are, and um, and maybe some of those things. Like I said, I know there's only a handful of videos on YouTube of Mark Ruder's racing, and yet, you know, some amazing things. Like I would have loved to have seen Mark's in-car from the, the was it the 2014 Nationals at Wakefield Park, where he came he through from down. way yeah. at the back and he ended up finishing second, uh, passing cherry on the grass on the on you know on the very last lap down the straight you know that sort of stuff yeah we i'd love to see that you know and if there's footage of that and i bet mark must have had an in-car camera you know but anyone like that who who you guys might know out there uh, if you've got contacts um yeah let's 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 try and dig that footage out and let's get it up there to help us stay excited about this great a category lot of, a lot of people would I've, I've heard the comment before oh, i've got some footage but it's not that good well that's 
your own criticism of your own footage, you know. But it's times it's times like these we need to drop we need to drop that attitude and just yeah. share. We need to just let I'm sure there's lots of people. I know a lot of my footage. I just look at it and cringe at some of the things I do. So you know, you can't be so too self-judging about these things. Get it out there. It's better for the community. Let's share everything and let's get everyone motivated as we can to get back on track as soon as we're allowed to. Yeah, for sure. No, all about that. So, yep, check the check the podcast description and uh, hit up your, your IP racing friends, past and present. Get that footage up. Uh, and if they can't do it, I'll do it for you. Open offer and, um, yeah, we'll get it done. So, yeah, mate. Look, Mick, thanks again for your time. I, I really appreciate it. I think... Yeah, it's, it's it's great to, to to take time to talk about IP, even if racing isn't happening. You and I obviously still love what we you know we love our cars and we and we're excited to get back to racing. I know a lot of our listeners are too. So, yeah, mate, we'll we'll, we'll keep putting content out there. Uh, remember to subscribe for future episodes. And look, thanks again for supporting the show. We really appreciate it. Thank you to our listeners, and get back on the spanners, get onto your cars, and we'll see you next time. Thanks, everyone.